questions. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 20 through 23. We kind of uh, briefly touched on verse 20 uh, last week, and that was just uh, kind of skipped right over it and just kind of dipped our toes into it a little bit. But we're going to be looking at verse 20 through 23 this morning. And one of the things that we're going to see uh, extremely uh, extremely at the forefront of our text is this word of, of reconciliation, of being reconciled, and what all that, that means. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? How is it that this happens? What is the purpose? Uh, that's going to be a, a popular theme for this morning. But last week, we looked at the person of Jesus Christ, and we saw him in incredible great detail. Uh, we saw a lot going on in these verses. So many of you uh, were coming in last Sunday super excited because you knew what the text was going to be, and you were eager and hopefully, um, I didn't completely ruin all your expectations of the text. Uh, but you came in, you were excited, because you look at this, and I just want to briefly uh, summarize what we saw in verses 15, especially through 18. We see in verse 15 that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. He's the exact representation of God because He is God. He's not just like God. He's not just the Son of God. He is God. Again, we talked about the Trinity here. And you remember, um, would you guys say over or under, I said Jesus is God. Over or under 15 times last week. Over? Yeah, I'll definitely take the over on that one. Okay, And I said this is incredibly important. We have to understand who God is. And we have to understand who Jesus is. Because if we don't, a lot of different things are going to fall apart. Uh, so I talked about that a whole lot last Sunday, and then uh, we had a small group and youth group on Wednesday night, and the exact conversation we had, and I talked with some of you about this, was about who is Jesus Christ. Was he man? Was he God? Was he both? Was he more one than the other? So heading into a lesson, one of the, one of the students in the youth said, hey, I have, an, I have an idea. What do you think about this? And I'm always curious, what is a teenager going to say? A teenager has an idea. It can go a lot of different ways, right? It's usually actually kind of dangerous. Uh, but he said, hey, that Jesus was more man and that he wasn't really God. He's the son of God, so he has divine uh, relationship, but he was just given gifts by God, but he wasn't actually God himself. He was simply a man. Okay, so this, this is coming forth, and I'm thinking, okay, well, whatever lesson I had, we're casting that out right now. We're going to talk about who is Jesus Christ. Now think about this. This is happening three days after the Sunday morning. I said over 15 times that Jesus is God and how crucial this is. And then you have teenagers coming and asking this question of was he actually God or was he just like God? It's incredible how God is working all of this out to be able to show these important things. And this is something where uh, as a youth pastor, as a pastor, as, as, as a Christian, if someone is coming and asking questions, genuinely searching to understand who is the person of Jesus Christ, forget whatever else you came in with the intention of talking about, that is your topic. And so we spent 15 to 20 minutes kind of going back and forth, and Traven was in there, and, and it was actually it was kind of cool having Traven step in. and um, So he's, he, this is his first year in the youth group, but being able to jump in, and someone who's younger, and being able to actually show, no, here's what the Bible says about who Jesus is, and that he is God. And as a youth pastor, one of the best things you can see is a teenager or a young, a young student being able to say, well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this. There's nothing more joyous than to be able to hear something like that from a child. Um, it is great to hear an adult say things that are biblically accurate. That's awesome. 
Uh, it's great to hear um, seniors be able to talk about the Bible and be accurate. Praise God for that. But to hear someone who is young understand these things, uh, I wish I had understood these things a whole lot sooner than I did. And so we had this conversation and how he, he had to be both God and man to do what he did. Uh, and I'm not going to rehash it because, again, many of you were here last Sunday and that's a lot of what we talked about. Um, but just stressing the importance of these are questions that teenagers, young people, um, even adults are genuinely asking and searching is how was Jesus both God and man? And being able to explain that and how central that is to our faith. Then we saw in verse 16 uh, that Christ has created all things, whether it's in heaven or in earth. All that we see, even all that we do not see, Christ has created. I mean, we, we think about how much we see and how incredible it is that he's created all these things. And, and I would err on the side, though, there's more that we do not see than we actually can see. And how incredible that is. And how um, the more that we look into things and science is evolving and continuing to show these things, that the world is irreducibly complex to where the more that you break down cells and, and DNA and all of this, it gets infinitely more complex. It doesn't get simplified. Again, uh, showing that there was a, an intelligent creator, and we see biblically who it is, and that is Christ. We saw in verse 17, He's before all things, and by Him all things consist. Christ continues to hold all things together. Again, He didn't create the world, set it on a clock, and just leave it away. He continues to hold all things together. And in verse 18 and 19, we see that He's the head of the church, and that He is preeminent. Again, he is before all things, he is the first. He is the one who receives the inheritance. And we saw back in Romans that we too, for those who have come to him in saving faith, we also receive the inheritance. Um, an incredible text in verses 15 to 19. And as Paul is laying this out, keep in mind some of the context here. He's refuting the different heresies that's going on. Saying that Jesus was just kind of like an angel. He's not enough for salvation. Right? We talked about that a couple of these different weeks. This idea was that, well, Jesus isn't sufficient for you to be saved. He's not enough. You need to have more. You need to worship these angelic beings. You need to have other gods. You need to have other spirits. You need to worship these philosophies. You have to have all of these extra things because the person and work of Christ was not enough. Now, we're familiar enough with Paul by this point, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Paul doesn't just sit there, hear these things, and go, well... They're a little misguided, but they'll figure it out. Paul is emphatic about the truth. And we see him here just asserting the things that are true, showing that Jesus Christ is absolutely God. And then we close here in verse 20. And again, we're going to be in verses 20 through 23. So let's, let's just take a quick look at our text. Starting in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that, that we are under grace. We thank you for your grace and for your goodness that 
that so many of us even receive this morning, that so many in the world receive your common grace each and every day and seem to be unaware of. God, I thank you that you've given us the freedom here in this country to be able to uh, freely and safely gather into this place, to be able to sing songs of praise, to be able to look at your word, to be able to see you uh, revealed through your word. God, I pray that as we look here in these short verses, verses in Colossians, that we would truly look at your son, that your son would be the focus of our entire morning today, and that on this Lord's Day you would receive all the glory. And God, I ask that you would give us the, the attentive ears and, and hearts that are open and willing to, to receive your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see here in verse 20, uh, again, I love how Paul seems to never waste a word, right? He, ne- he never wastes words. He doesn't waste sentences. There's not a lot of fluff in what he does. We look at uh, the book of Colossians here, and in my Bible it takes up about, you know, two and a half pages total. This is a short letter. Uh, many of us have probably written uh, more words in a blog post or um, text messages that are almost equally this long if you're... Um, like me in conversations with, with my father, you, you realize how much you actually speak in a short conversation, the amount of words that are used. And some of you are like, yeah, we know you're wordy. We, we know that. Um, but again, you just think about it and, and the time that it takes to read this and how much is packed into it, the core doctrines of the Christian faith here between Romans and now here in Colossians. But he starts off in verse 20. Again, speaking of Christ, Christ being the subject, him being the focus, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace was made by Christ through the blood of his cross, his blood, his death, nothing else. He's the only one that could ever bring any peace in the relationship between God and man. Again, we we tend to think that just because there was a man who died on a cross and that there's something about uh, just being on a cross where if you died on a cross and that was going to bring redemption and that was going to um, atone for all the sins. And we, we sometimes fail to remember that there, were a, there was a person on either side of him. But the difference is that the people that were also with him on those crosses were not the Son of God. They were not the image of the invisible God. They were not the one, was not the one who created all things. They were not the perfect, sinless Son of God. So he makes it clear, talking about Jesus, that Jesus, having made peace through the blood of his cross, again, having made peace here, in the Greek, the tense is in the aorist tense, showing that it has already been accomplished. This is not just, Jesus is kind of working in peaceful negotiations. He's not sitting at a table trying to negotiate peace currently. It has already been made. The peace has been made for those who are in Christ. He has already made peace between God and man for those who have received salvation through Christ's atoning work. Peace has been made. It's been accomplished. And again, I I love being able to just simply look and understanding. um, It it wasn't until just a couple years ago that I ever cared about anything grammatical. You know? You you read the English uh, text and I just can't really care less about, I don't care about the grammar. Um, I learned the same grammar rules since I was about five and I never figured them out until recently. I was kind of embarrassed about that and admitting that now. It was just something that never intrigued me. But then you realize, and looking at the Greek language and seeing the tense and how so many different things get put into place, he has already made peace through the blood of his cross. Talking about for those who have received him. Peace has been made. If you're here today and you believed upon Christ for salvation, peace has been made between you and God. It's done. It's been made. It's accomplished because of his work on the cross. 
And so then we continue, and we continue on with his understanding, but, but never read something like this, never read this phrase, never read this truth and seem to forget what it is that it's saying, having made peace through what? He doesn't just declare peace and say, I'm just going to bestow peace upon everybody. This wasn't something that was peace that was freely given. Now, for, for those of us who have received it, I, I see how we can understand it, but it, there was a cost and Paul is making it clear again, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The cost was the blood of the sinless, perfect Son of God in Christ. And so then he continues, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. And then right after that phrase, again, by him. So what is this term reconcile? What does it mean to be reconciled? Many of us um, we, we understand what this means for some of us biblically. Um, others, we understand this in a different way. To be reconciled one to another. To repair a relationship. We, we hear this um, within marriages or in divorces. Um, reconciliation, right? Whether it's any relationship that we can have, there's reconciliation that takes place where you were once at odds. You were once enemies. And then you become friends. Uh, we have an understanding of irreconcilable differences. There's not going to be any repair there. But here what we're seeing is, is as he's talking about this, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him, by Christ, to reconcile all things unto himself. God is the one who is making reconciliation between God and man through Jesus Christ. He is the agent of it. He is the one who is enacting these things. Biblically, this speaks of a man's relationship to God, restoring the restoration of a right relationship between God and man. And it's so important that we understand the initial starting point that we are all born into. We see in the book of Romans that uh, because of the sin of Adam, sin is passed down into all men. And we all understand, we understand our sinful state from the very beginning. We all have a relationship with God. It's just is it one of enemies or friends. And this is one of those most daunting realities is that when we come to a point and understand our sinful state before a perfect and holy God, the next question, when we truly understand what that means, is, okay, how can I fix that? And there's so many different solutions people try to come up with. And one of the most common is the solution that says, just work really hard and do a whole bunch of good things so you can keep track on your resume. And then when you get to heaven, you're going to be able to walk up to God and say, hey, look at all the good that I did for you. Look how awesome I am. This should repair our relationship. And all of that's going to be burned up. There is no way that we're ever going to be made right before a holy God in our sinful condition. So the word that's used here for reconcile, not in this text, but generally, is, is ketalasso, which means to change or exchange. It was uh, commonly used with the, the exchanging of coins. So there's an exchange. There's a changing that's taking place. It's also used back in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. But again, this is a very uh, a calm, a very docile form of the word here for reconcile. The word that Paul uses in Colossians, however, is not just catalasso, but he adds a preposition to it. He, he adds a preposition beforehand to intensify or make it more emphatic the word. So this isn't just, oh, there's reconciliation. So uh, imagine being on the playground and you guys are you're wrestling with your best friend. None of you would ever wrestle. I understand that. Um, but you're playing a game with your best friend. You're on the playground. You're, you're fighting around a little bit, and one of you hits the other one a little bit too hard. This happens all the time when Benji and I wrestle. This happened all the time uh, if you had older brothers or sisters. Again, I was the youngest, so usually I was the one that got hit too hard initially. 
right? So what happens is you get hit, someone's mad, right? Oh no, the relationship is a little bit, uh, it needs some, needs some repairing. How, how can it be reconciled? Usually one would just say what? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, now you're good. So reconciling could just simply mean, okay, there's a little bit of an issue, but it's easy to fix. And a lot of us, this is usually what we understand, right? We repair relationships simply with an I'm sorry or a little bit of work. A simple reconciliation of I'm sorry handles a lot of different, different relationships. But remember what Paul is doing here. He's writing to people who are, who are going to be under this understanding or this false teaching that said, Jesus is not enough for you to be reconciled to God. Yes, you are sinful. Yes, He is holy. But Jesus Christ is not enough for you to be saved from that. He's not enough to, be recon to reconcile you to God. His work on the cross, not enough. You need all of these other things. So fill it up with everything else. So Paul, as we know him to be, a bold personality doesn't just say, oh, by the way, Christ is enough to reconcile you, but he adds this preposition to the beginning of the word to intensify it. You have been absolutely reconciled before God. Absolutely, completely, and totally. Reconciled, restored in your relationship to God, moving from enmity to harmony. Now think about this. A perfect and holy God looks down at sinful man, continuing in sinful deeds, but, as we're going to see later, there's going to be a, there's going to be a shift, there's going to be a change that occurs. He looks down and being reconciled through the blood of his cross, he declares man righteous. And so again, he's so emphatic and so intense in his speech because he's countering this false teaching. Uh, Paul's not willing, and none of us should be as well, with settling with this idea that, hey, Christ, Christ is good for salvation uh, mostly, but if he may not be enough, so you need to add all these other things. And again, we've all heard the litany of different things that people try to add to it. Um, it's everything. And a lot of it is things simply for control. Because if I can control your behavior, if I can make you think that you have to behave these different ways for salvation, I can control you. But what is the, what, what is, what is the gospel? What, what is the Bible saying? And this goes back to the conversation I had in youth group. Well, Jesus had to be just a man because if he was God, then at the end of the day I realized that I am not able to live up to that standard. And I said, yes, you get it. You cannot meet that standard. That is why Jesus had to be God. Why He had to do what He did. Because we as sinful people cannot meet that standard. And so we have two responses to say, God, that's not fair. And we can continue in our hatred towards God. Or we can be submissive and bow down and praise God because He did not stay silent. But that, what do we see? Having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself that we have been reconciled because of the perfect work of Christ. And I love the relationship here that we continue to see of, of God the Father and, and Jesus the Son working together. God is reconciling all things unto himself. He's not reconciling um, all things unto somebody else. Who else would he reconcile them to? It's to him. Our sin is an offense to God. God is reconciling all things to himself and the agent is Christ. He uses Christ to do this. And this is incredible harmony that we continue to see in the Trinity. And then he adds at the end of verse 20, I say whether they be things in earth 
or things in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? All things, whether in heaven or in earth, are going to be reconciled? I mean, we know even scientifically that the earth is kind of wasting away. All, all things are breaking down. Things are falling apart. All things are going to be reconciled. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth. All these things are going to be restored, and all things are going to be reconciled and redeemed to him, the one who made it all. Verse 21, and you, and now he moves from a general conversation to a very specific one. Again, he's writing to a church in Colossae. He's writing to the Colossians. He's writing to believers. And he's going to remind them about who they are positionally and where they were positionally before Christ. And again, so we're moving from speaking generally to specifically. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And you, he reminds us of, of the state that we were once in. He's, he's writing to these Christians, to these believers, and saying, Christian, he has reconciled you. It has happened. He has done so. Do you need more? Do you need to know more? Do you need to have more in your life to understand that you've been reconciled? Do you need an angelic spirit to worship? Do you need another God? Absolutely not, because there is no other God other than, than the one true God. There is no other God, and Christ has proven to be sufficient. And he shows this by saying, you are proof that he has reconciled you. That this relationship has been made right. You are proof of the promise. And he reminds them in verse 21 where they were apart from Christ. You were alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works. The sinful condition puts us at enmity with God. We are enemies of him. Before a person comes to Christ by faith, he or she is alienated from God. This is not just friends who may not be BFFs. This is not just acquaintances. These, this is complete and total opposition. Uh, flip over just quickly into Ephesians chapter 4. It should just be a few pages back. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Understanding this condition, and he's outlining this to show these people, do you remember where you were apart from Christ? Do not add anything. Look at where you are now compared to then. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Do you remember the way in which you used to walk, blind to the things of God, ignorant to Him, walking in the wicked ways, actively serving sin? Because sin feels good. It, make, it made you happy. It felt good at the time to do so. And, and it comes along and it seems so intriguing. And, and He's outlining this, reminding them that, hey, by the way, you were alienated and enemies of God in your wicked ways. Enemies of God. Again, I've said this before, there is no neutral state before God. God does not look at a person and say, hey, I'm not really sure. Are you, do you love me or do you hate me? There's no middle ground. And so often we like to play in the gray, right? Especially when it's convenient. And the Bible is so very clear. 
those who are alienated from God are not alienated simply out of, out of ignorance, but out of our sinful condition leading to a hateful disposition of our heart. We looked last week and mentioned how when, so many, when things happen in the world that we do not like, we want to blame God so often. God, this is not fair that I have to deal with this. God, this is not fair that you don't know what's going on with my family. God, this isn't fair that we see all these things in the world. I mean, just look at the news again this past week. We can say this all the time. We're looking at what's going on now in different countries and us in Syria and all the craziness that's going on. And a lot of us are looking around saying, God, where are you in all of this? And so often, this is what we're, we're trying to understand. We're trying to, to look for someone to blame as if God is the one who has the problem. As if God is the one who is creating all of these different issues that we see in the world. As if God created the world intending for it all to be sinful and hateful to Him. We fail to understand our role in this. What did God say after He created the world? He looked and saw, saw it and called it what? Good then we got in the way, right? And again, for those who, who may tend to say, well, I don't think sin is a real thing. I don't think that we have a sinful condition. Think about your day. Think about your week. Think about your thoughts. It only goes so far. Again, turn on the news. Look at what's going on in the world. Man is the problem, not God. And so he's making it clear, showing this, this contrast of, do you remember, church, where you used to be, that you were one time alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works to God? You had a hateful disposition in your heart because of the sin towards God. He is a perfect, holy, all-powerful God, the one who made all things, and you are not right with him. You do not have a right relationship with him. So the next question, how can a holy God and a sinful man be reconciled? A holy God can take no part in sin. Okay, so holy God, sinful me, it's not going to mash together. It's like trying to take two different colors and put them in together. It's not going to happen right away. So what has to happen? How can that be made right? There has to be a way. And again, I said so many times, we, we try to figure this out and we try to go, okay, I just need to work hard. I just need to do good things and then, then God's going to do it. What do we know? Our works are sinful rags. The works that we do are simply sinful rags apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit. Well, we're not going to change a holy God, right? Um, we're not going to be able to change a holy God. And this is what we tend to do. A lot of churches, a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers and, and teachers, and this is happening in seminaries all over the world too. They're, instead of understanding our sinful state, they say, hey, how about we change who God is and make it more palatable for people? Because if God is holy and I'm not, and I'm not uh, righteous before Him, and I'm viewed as sinful, and God can take no part in sin. In fact, He's a just God who will punish sin. What does that mean for me? Well, I don't really like that. So how about we say that God isn't holy, that God is, that God is all these other things, and we try to manipulate who God is, the one who is never changing. So you've got to change the sinful man. You've got to appease the wrath of a holy God. The wrath, the punishment against sin. You have to do this. So how does that happen? Again, link everything back to verse 20. 20 is kind of a linchpin verse for our text here. How, did, how is sinful man going to be changed? How is the wrath of God going to be appeased? Having made peace through the blood of his cross. That is how this all took place. The wrath of God poured out on the cross. The, the cross that Christ bore for our sins. This is how all of it is taking place. 
appeasing the wrath of a holy God. And in these conversations, and again, it's so critical to understand who Christ is and how is it that the death of one man could mean all of these different things? How can the death of simply one person, one man, atone for the sins of the world? How can the death of one man hanging and dying and bleeding on a cross make peace with a perfect and almighty holy God? Well, one, he's not just a man, he's God himself, reconciling all things to himself, which Paul is making clear. But Jesus is not just the same as any other man. He's the one that we saw in the previous verses. He is the image of the invisible God. He has created all things, whether in heaven or on earth. All things were created by him and for him, for his glory. He is before all things. By him all things consist. He holds all of it together. He's the head of the body. He is preeminent. He is all of these different things because if we can take all that He has created, all the mountains, all the, the waters, all the different things that we see in this earth, all the different things that we enjoy in life, and we can take it on a scale and we can put it on one side, and you can put Christ on the other, and Christ will far outweigh every other thing that has ever been made or we have ever seen. And it's not even close. Because what was the point of Him making all of these things? to point to Him, to show Him, to give Him the honor, to give Him the glory, to show His glory upon the entire earth. And this is what, why we have to be so careful and why I, I do spend so much time in wanting to make sure that we understand who Jesus Christ is and what it is that He did and all that it means because it's the exact, the, the only foundation that we set anything on is the hope and the truth of the Gospel. And it is such a beautiful truth that Christ died as the substitute, taking our punishment, our sin, to atone for our sins that we continue to show was absolutely necessary that He had to do. We continue to show this. So it's so important that we understand all that took place. So we've got to change the sinful man, and that's exactly what God did through Christ. So in Corinthians, we see that those in Christ are a new creation. Sinful man has changed. Our disp the disposition of our heart turns towards God. And it's such a beautiful thing. And again, as I said, even in different seminaries, and there's a reason I didn't attend certain seminaries, uh, because there's teachers now that are writing articles and that are leading in the theological um, spectrum that are now denying the substitutionary death of Christ, saying... Well, he didn't actually die for your sins and that the blood of Christ didn't actually save anybody. Now imagine, these are people who, are training who would be training pastors like myself, who would be training college students, going to school to learn about the Bible and learn about Christ and learn about God and who He is. And they're, going, they're hearing, and these are popular ones. Christianity Today is putting a lot of these guys at the forefront of the greatest theologians of our day, and they deny that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for us. Well, you might as well get rid of any bit of hope in the Bible then. Well, if it wasn't for me, why would I be thankful? Then he deserved it? Absolutely not. Christ didn't deserve the death, but he took it for us. This is why we see him in the garden, praying the way that he does. It's the most beautiful truth that we have in the Bible is that Jesus Christ died as our substitute, taking the, the, all the wrath of God upon himself. Some of you are familiar with, with Pastor Paul Washer, and if you know anything about him, he is, um, let's just say, firm. 
If you're familiar with him, you will firm will definitely be an understatement. But he, he illustrates it in this way, and I absolutely love uh, the way that, that he shows this because it, it really answers that question of, you know, how, how could that be so significant? How is that such a beautiful thing, this idea of the substitute? So he says, imagine that you, you live in a village, in a very small village, and just a, a few hundred yards away from you, there, there's a dam. And you're right kind of near the base of it, and you're, you live extremely close, and the dam is a thousand miles high, a thousand miles wide. And you wake up one morning to what sounds like the world is going to crack, the world is coming to an end, and you look out your window, and you see there is a crack in the dam. Again, you are hundreds of yards away, a thousand miles high, a thousand miles wide. You look out your window and you see a crack in the dam and it's beginning to crack and crumble. It's all going to come apart. And as you continue to look, all of a sudden, it absolutely explodes. The dam breaks. All of the water is coming to you. A thousand miles high, a thousand miles wide. Keep this in mind. It does not matter how good of a swimmer you are. It does not matter how fast you can run. You are going to die completely and totally die. From that point on, no one will know who you are. Anyone in that village is absolutely going to die. It is 100% certain. Now put yourself in that position, seeing this happening, thinking, looking around and knowing that you have your children in the home. You are going to die. You and your husband, your wife, whoever is there is absolutely going to die. And it is coming at you and you're trying to get away. And just before it gets to you, all of a sudden, the ground opens up and swallows every last drop. So then that one little drip hits your sock. That is what Christ did on the cross. This is the cup that he bore, drinking in the wrath of God on the cross. He, it was, wasn't drinking a cup of fear because of what the Romans were going to do, but it was because of what Christ had to take, bearing the wrath, the sin, the death, all the punishment of the world, drinking that cup down as our substitute, the cup that we should be drinking. He took it all. What a beautiful thing that happened at the cross. Jesus Christ reconciled to God, to himself, all who receive him by faith. And in verse 22, he, he shows why he reconciled us. And what's the goal? What's the purpose? What's one of the, the main causes and reasons for this? In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. God desires for those those who are in Christ, he wants to reconcile us to present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable. To present us holy, blameless, without fault. To present sinful man, blameless. Sinful man as ones without fault. How's that going to happen? Can't he see? Can't he see who I am? God knows all things. He, he sees all things. Doesn't he know my sinful condition? Doesn't he know that my heart doesn't he know the things that I've done? Absolutely he does. But what is it that happens? Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself, Christ's work for those who are in him causes God to see those who are in Christ as holy, unblameable, and unreprovable as we receive the righteousness of his Son. 
Again, we, we talked about this, the, the incredible exchange of here. God, you get, you, Jesus, you drink down all of my sin, and in return, you give me your righteousness. This is the absolute worst deal I've ever heard of. Even politicians on, on either side of the aisle would absolutely agree, this is a horrible deal. Terrible. But yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. And now we understand that, again, this, this is important. A lot of times we can skip over this, present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable, and we can stop and say, wow. But it adds these last three words, in his sight. Because when he looks upon those who are in Christ, he looks and he sees his perfect, sinless son, the one who reconciled us to himself. This is not by our merits. Absolutely not by our merits. We are not found holy. We are not found blameless. We are not found unreprovable because of our own merits. Our merits get us the wrath of God and punishment. We're, we're very clear with this by now. Our merits are absolutely horrendous. Our resume is awful. But it's in His sight. This is indicative of our position in Christ, not because of our merits. By nature of our position and who we are in Christ, God sees us where we are, which is in Christ. He sees us based on where we are, which is in Christ. Verse 23, we're just going to touch on this here just for a moment, and, and next week we'll see it a little bit more. But going to show in verse 23 that there's evidence of this, evidence that you can know, and there's, there's assurance that takes place in this. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Can I know that I've been reconciled to God? Yeah, if you continue. If you continue in the faith, being grounded, being rooted, being firmly planted by the streams of water, the streams of life, being planted in the truth of the gospel, which was preached, and where Paul is a minister. John MacArthur said, you know you can tell, you know how you can tell the true Christian? The one who continues. He continues. He endures. He continues on. The word continue, epimeno, means to continue on with persistence. And I love this, this additive. That suits the objective. Continuing on with persistence, that suits the objective. What's the objective? Pursuing Christ, pursuing Him, pursuing His holiness. Understanding the gospel, to know who He is more. The true Christian, the one who, who flees to, to solitude to be able to study and know His Bible, not because they want to be smarter than anyone, we don't read the Bible just to gain knowledge and to be smart and say, well, look how much I read. I'm a lot smarter than the other people in the pew. We don't even have pews, so that wouldn't work. So I guess I'm the smartest person in the pew. Don't read the Bible. Don't, don't study just to simply know more and to be able to say that you have knowledge and to be able to say that you're smarter than the next person. Go there to see Christ, to meet Him, to commune with Him, to behold all of His glory in His Word. Again, the Word became flesh, and that person was Christ. Christ was the physical embodiment of what it is that you hold in your hands. All of these things point to Him. It all testified to Him, beginning to end. We, we went through that. Genesis, all the way through the New Testament. So Paul is saying, you, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Do not move away from the hope of the gospel. Do not let anyone else move you away from the hope of the gospel. 
Don't let someone tell you that Christ didn't die as a substitute, because he absolutely did. If he didn't, we're all in a whole lot of trouble. There's no hope apart from that. Continue steadfastly in being grounded and rooted in the gospel. The objective is Christ. The goal is Christ. Pursuing him and his holiness. He is the hope of, of glory. And he made peace through the blood of his cross to reconcile all things unto himself, whether in heaven or on earth. What an incredible truth that Paul is outlining here to those who may have succumbed to this idea that Jesus Christ is enough. Paul simply says he is absolutely enough and more than enough. He is more than you will ever need. You will want nothing in Christ. He is totally sufficient for all salvation, for all time, relying upon his finished work. And I am incredibly thankful for that this morning. And that's the reason I think all of us are here today, to be able to reflect upon Christ and what it is that he did and to see his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your son. We thank you for reconciling us unto you. We thank you that through Christ, that if we receive him by faith and confess that he is Lord and acknowledge him as our as Savior and recognizing his complete, finished, atoning work on the cross as our substitute, that you reconcile us to you, that we've been reconciled through the blood of the cross of Christ, that our relationship, which was one of of enmity, one where we were enemies of you, we had a hateful disposition in our heart towards you, we, we sought to blame you for everything, we, we, just, we sought to be our own authority, we, we tried to control all things, and we see in, in your word that you are completely sovereign, you are above all things, you are before all things, you hold it all together. God, we praise you this morning and in this time for, for offering reconciliation through your Son. For not setting a clock and watching the world go, but that you are actively involved in what it is that goes on. That you continued, you continued steadfastly in your promises. That we, we look in your word and we see you perfectly fulfilling all that you've promised in the person of Christ. We, we thank you. God, we praise you for being the creator. We praise you for being holy. We praise you for being good, for being merciful, for being gracious, for being all that you say you are. We thank you for your love. God, we, we thank you that you did not just sit by and, and let man wander in, in, our, in our sinful condition, but that you, you reached down, you sent your son who would, who would come in the form of flesh, in the form of a man, so that he may save man, that he may redeem man. We thank you for your, your work in redemption. We thank you for your for your finished work in Christ. We thank you for giving your spirit so that we may continue to be sanctified and, and conforming more and more into the image of your Son. God, thank you for preparing and making a way, fulfilling a way and promising a way that we can be reconciled to you. We thank you for the redemption that you, you've given to us. And God, I ask that you would continue to to grow us and to mature us in you, that we would continue to grow in our desires and our, and our affections towards you, that we would actively seek to, to love you, to know you more, to, to not simply just have, have a knowledge and understanding of you, but to truly know you, to know who you are, to know your attributes, to know your voice, to, 
to behold you in all your glory. God, we thank you for this time today. In Jesus' name.